Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to John chapter 21. We're going to look at verses uh, 4 through 19 this morning. So we're in week three of a series that we started, and that is asking this question, if the resurrection is real. Uh, and obviously when you think that, that question, you're like, well, duh, I go to church, we celebrated Easter, I get that, the resurrection is real. But I was really caught with this over the last couple months because I think we, many of us, if you've known Jesus for a while, you got the resurrection thing. You think, okay, I got that down. But you have it more as a fact, historically, or as information you read in the Bible. And you think historic, You think of resurrection as something in the future, that I'm going to die and I'll be resurrected. But if you're honest with yourself, the resurrection really doesn't mean a whole lot to you in a day-to-day experience. Because the reason that's important to kind of identify is because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus' original followers witnessed the resurrection, it changed everything for them. Nothing was the same. They weren't the same. Their lives weren't the same. And because of that, 2,000 years removed, we have the same spirit living inside of us, and the resurrection is the same fact it was 2,000 years ago, that the resurrection should actually change our experience and what life looks like, especially what it looks like in following Jesus. But I think that the, the tension is, for many of us, the resurrection is a fact that gets put on the shelf to gather dust for some future thing that's going to be experienced that we'll be able to enjoy. But right now, it's just about, I need forgiveness, so I focus in on the cross, which is great, but apart from the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. It's the cross and the resurrection. So, so what I feel like, the, the, as we walk through the series, it's like pulling the, the reality of the resurrection off the shelf, dusting it off, and realizing it's actually supposed to make a difference in my life today. It's not something just for the future. It's something that actually I can actually experience in my life every single day. So about probably six to eight months, almost a year, I think, maybe before we moved back down to California when we were living in Oregon, uh, the lawnmower that I had actually had as a hand-me-down from the previous pastor that was up in Newburgh, Oregon, I had received, and it finally died. In fact, in Oregon, things die by rust because there's so much, like, wetness. And and a lawnmower, my my lawnmower literally from the inside out was, like, rusting out, and I would mow, and some parts would fall off of it, you know, and hope it would still run, and it just finally gave it up. And so at that time, Jordan was kind of— taking over the responsibilities of mowing. So I thought, well, it's time to upgrade to like a nice mower. Now, I'd never owned like a brand new mower in my entire life. I thought, all right, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to get a really nice mower. And so I went to Home Depot and found a great mower. It was, it was the best thing because we had, you know, in Oregon, there's lots of mud, and it's sometimes you have to push through the mud. And it was a self-propelled mower. It's like, if you need anybody mow, you know, like, that's pretty cool, right? You guys don't mow your lawns. You all have gardeners, Okay. Which means you just pull a little handle and the wheels start turning and you just kind of follow the thing around the yard and guide it. It's the coolest thing. The other thing I, I, when I bought it, I didn't realize this, but it, for the first three years of this lawnmower, it is guaranteed to start on the first or second pole. Now, some of you who have been like mowing experts, that's you, like we got that one. I was impressed. And literally for the first six months, on the first pole, every single time the mower would start. Now, that was awesome because my other lawnmower, 10 poles, and sometimes it wouldn't start, right? And you're like, you're killing your arm. So this was the coolest thing. But then we moved. And so Jordan was slowly getting the, the, the reins, and so I was mowing as much. And then we moved down, and the house we moved into, we originally moved down here when we were renting, they provided a gardener. So I disassembled the mower in terms of the handles, and I got rid of the gas and the oil and everything, and so I knew it was just going to kind of sit. And it sat in a place in our garage that every time when I drive in, I could see it. And like the first six months, it was fine, but then like month seven, eight, nine, and then year two, like cobwebs and dust and spiders and, right? You know what I'm talking about? Just kind of gathering dust there. And I felt bad. Not for the lawnmower. I know it has no personality, okay? I, I'm not weird. But I just felt bad. I'm like, you got this, this thing that is like the coolest thing, and I love to mow, and I can't do it, and it's just sitting there. And, 
three years go by and it's not touched until finally we moved in the last year. And I was excited. I got to mow my lawn again. I actually had a lawn to mow. And so I pulled it out and I put gas and oil and got it all tuned up. And I'm thinking there's no way in the world this is going to start on the first or second pull. It's been sitting for three years. First pull, nothing. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to pull five, six, maybe ten times. Second pull, boom. I'm like, oh. Music to my ears. And I, you're thinking, you're weird. You like to mow. I do. I like to mow and vacuum because I'm a control freak and I can make nice lines, right? Anybody want to admit that's you, right? <laughs> yeah, Ray Hostetler came and talked to me between services. He's like, yes, you like to do that too, don't you? Yeah, it's just something therapeutic for me as a pastor, something I can control, right? I don't know. I have issues. But what's the point of a lawnmower if it sits in the garage? It has no point. It just gathers dust. It just sits there. But the reason you have a lawnmower is to do what? Mow your lawn. The reason there's a resurrection is because it's actually supposed to come to bear in our lives today. It's not supposed to be this nice historical fact in the past and some future reality that we get to experience. That's what it, it wasn't that for the first disciples. It changed everything for them. And so in the story that we're going to look at this morning in verses 4 through 19, this is the story with Peter encountering Jesus again. This is what people would call Peter's restoration. And I want to look at this story because it, it demonstrates Peter's experience with the resurrection, which should be ours. This isn't something for just Peter in this, in this context. It's something we should experience. So let me start at verse 4, and I'll go down to verse 19 in, in John 21. It says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Does this sound any familiar like the first time Peter met Jesus? So, so they cast, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, and they dragged the net, of of, uh, net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they had got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went ab uh, aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of his, the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death that he would glorify or to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is an amazing story of what Peter experienced with Jesus, which should be our experience. No, you're not going to come on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is going to be cooking some fish. That's not going to happen to you and I, okay? But what Peter experienced in this encounter with Jesus should be the experience that we have in regard to the resurrection. 
And there's six things I want to draw out of this that seem to indicate to us things that should be true of our experience and what happens when the resurrection actually impacts our lives. The first one is this, that it, that it actually looks like hope, that we actually have real hope. So if you, if you read through the Gospel of John, you get to chapter 19. If the disciples were originally writing the Gospel of John before Jesus rose from the dead, the Gospel of John would have ended at chapter 19 because that was when Jesus died. And when Jesus died for his first disciples, that was it. They were convinced that everything that they had hoped for had now died in Jesus. There was no hope beyond this. They had made fools of themselves and given their lives to him. They had witnessed some really cool stuff, but because he was dead, there was no hope beyond now. This was it. This is all that they could experience because to them, the whole narrative ends when Jesus dies. And when something dies that you think is all your hopes and dreams, then there is no hopes and dreams beyond that point. But then Jesus rises from the dead. That's why we have chapter 20. And the result of the resurrection is what seems like a dead end is always a beginning with God. That's true in every aspect of our life. That means when you and I get to the worst moment of our life, the greatest failure of our life, the most difficult season of our life, and we think this is the end. There is nothing beyond this. I can't get over this. I can't get through this. The resurrection screams this reality. There is hope beyond now. There is hope beyond today. And I'm not just talking about eternal hope. I'm talking about hope that God can actually work in your life beyond your circumstance. The disciples got this. That's why they were relatively excited when they realized Jesus was alive. That means that what they thought was the end was actually the beginning. And so many times in our life, I think we get stuck in this. We give up before God ever quits. God doesn't quit. We do. We stop long before God does. We write the end of the story when God isn't finished writing, and he's still going on, and you and I have stopped somewhere along the line and said, this is the end. Aren't you glad that you're not the writer of human history? And God is, because he continues to unfold it, and he continues to say the end is not the end. And I think for some of us, we, we live in that. We always give up sooner than we should. It's part of our culture, I think, to quit sooner than later, to give up, to kind of say, you know what, it's not working, I'm going to walk away from this, or this is too deep of a failure, I can't get past this. We do it the way, especially in L.A., if you go to a sporting event, we always leave before the end, don't we? Right? Most of us do. Most of us, why? Because this thing called traffic, and you're busy. If you go to a Dodger game or a Laker game, and if, if you can bear going to a Ram game, you'll, you'll end up seeing that by the end of the game, half the stands are empty, even if it was a sellout. Unless it's a really, really close game and really important. Why? Because in our minds, we, if, if the score reaches a certain place, we're like, you know what? It's over. Like, remember like 1988, any hardcore Dodger fans remember Kurt Gibson hit that home run to win game one against the A's? Half of the stadium had left. They were in the parking lot and they heard this roar and like, what happened? And they all missed it. Why? Because they left too soon. We do this with movies too. You know how many times producers will add in at the end or directors will add in at the end just after the credits something really important to the storyline or outtakes or something you should see, but as soon as the credits come on, what do you, oh, we're out of here, right? So you get up and you walk and you look at those idiots who are still sitting in their seats. What are you waiting for? The movie's over. And they know something that you don't know. The movie's not over yet. But you and I, are, we're, out, we're out the door. We do it in marriage too. We do it in marriage. We, we're, we're out. Sorry, it's too tough. And you're like, oh, Pastor John, you don't know my circumstance. I don't know your circumstance, but I know God redeems. And it's never over because God can work a miracle. And I know that. I watched it in my sister's life. Her marriage was over, and God worked a miracle. Although her marriage ended there, she tried and tried and tried because she believed that God would do something. Her husband, on the other hand, decided to walk away from Jesus. She couldn't control that. But she never gave up on that. She believed that. 
And there's some today here at the end, you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But if both of you realize that God can do something beyond what you think he can, we do this in relationships, we do this in failures. We think failure is the end. Failure is never the end because of the resurrection. It tells us there is a new beginning. And the second thing, our experiencing the resurrection in our lives looks like passion. Something that some of us are very unfamiliar with. Peter, we love Peter and we laugh at Peter and we make Peter the example of what we shouldn't do. I think Peter got it more than all the other disciples. Peter had passion. So if you read this story in verse 7, what does Peter do? Can you imagine you're, out a, you're like 100 yards offshore, you're fishing, and Jesus tells you to do what he did before, which was, hey, you're not catching, try the other side of the boat, and they start catching. And then John says to Peter, hey, it's Jesus. Now, remember, most of the disciples are there, and none of them jump out of the boat except for who? Peter. He was half naked, he throws his clothes on, he jumps in the water, and he's going to get there faster than the boat, at least in his own mind. Why? Because it was Jesus. And then when they're sitting around the fire and Jesus says, oh, he gets some more fish so that I can cook it for you. Who's the only one in the first one to jump up? Peter. Do you realize what happens? Peter gets over and he pulls the entire net in the, uh, on shore by himself. Nobody else helped him. Why? Because Peter had this sense that it's Jesus. Something's happened. In fact, what's important about this is now we know that Jesus had appeared a couple other times to his disciples, but we don't have the encounter that's described here. The last recorded encounter that we have with Peter and Jesus, do you recall what it is? It's when Peter betrayed Jesus. Remember his third betrayal? Jesus and Peter's eyes locked, and Peter felt incredible shame, and it says he went out and he wept bitterly. That was the last kind of recorded one-on-one -on -one encounter Jesus had with Peter. And now what do we have? Something has happened in these other two encounters that now Peter is overwhelmed and excited. Why? Because Jesus has shown up, and so he has this, this driving passion that he literally would jump into the water like a little kid to try to get to Jesus faster. That is so important. Because I, I, I've watched in my life, there's seasons, and I watch in the lives of other people, we've lost our passion for Jesus. And what I mean is not that you're going to go live a, a godly life and you're going to go do things for Jesus. You've lost passion to encounter Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. We've lost that. But the resurrection says that he's alive, and the same spirit that was in the disciples then is the same spirit that lives in us, which means I should have a passion to encounter Jesus. If there's a chance that I might encounter Jesus in some dynamic in my life, I want to show up for that. I want to be present for that. I don't want to be too busy or too important or have some other thing that I have to be doing. If I have an idea that Jesus is going to be there, then why shouldn't I be there? Now, I know I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to try to equate this, you know, with, with church attendance, but I, I think sometimes we miss out on stuff that God is doing collectively because we have so many other things that we're doing in our schedule, so many other important things. I mean, we better have Jesus show up at our services. Otherwise, seriously, let's just go watch the NBA finals, right? Let's go do something more productive. But if we're anticipating that Jesus is actually going to show up in our midst, then we should probably want to be here. But Jesus doesn't just show up at church. He shows up, what, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the other days of our life. But there's this passion that drives us. Can you tap into passion? Do you remember the moment when you had passion in your life? Think about the person you love the most. The person I love the most in this world, other than Jesus, is my wife, Kim. When I was coming back from Brazil, been gone for two weeks, we had been dating for six months, and I wanted to see her. I had an overnight flight from Brazil. It's like 11 hours, and so I got off the plane. I'd been awake for 36 hours straight because I don't sleep on planes. We drove from LAX to Van Nuys. I dropped off all my stuff at my house, got in my car, and drove another hour to Ventura. I was exhausted, but who cares? I was going to see Kim. Anybody remember what it felt like that way? Can you remember? It should be that way for Jesus. It should be, man, if 
we, I've mentioned this before, the staff here, every quarter gets a sabbatical day with pay, which means they get to go away. They can't run errands. It's not a vacation day. It's a day to go be with Jesus. Just go. Just go. Don't do any work and just spend the whole day with Jesus. I love those days. I look, I see it on my calendar and I can't wait for that day. Why? Because for me, I just go to the beach and I listen to music and I read scripture and I just said, okay, just, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a child of God. It's just you and me. And I love it. And I've said it before, Kim loves it when I go too because I come back different. Because what? I've had an encounter with Jesus. Don't you want to be present? Little side note. We have a worship night coming up. And, and we, were, we were excited last time we did our worship night. Half the church showed up. The worship night was awesome, but I'm like, what? Half the church? That's great. I was expecting we won't have any room left in this because we all can't fit in one service. But what if there's a potential that Jesus is actually going to show up on that night? Well, I'm not much of a singer. I don't, I don't sing very well. I don't care. I don't either. God gave you a voice for him. He didn't give you a voice to be an opera singer. He just gave you a voice to worship, right? Why not lean in? Why not? Like, you know what? He might be there. I'm going to be there. Don't worry. I'm not going to stand in the back and take attendance. It's not to shame you into coming. But show up. Shouldn't our prayer time, shouldn't our devotional time, like in the morning, I can't wait, or in the evening, or whenever it is, I, I get to hear God's word, I get to encounter Jesus, he's going to speak to me, I get to speak to him, I'm excited about that, why? Because I get to encounter Jesus, I'll move on, get the point. We should be passionate like Peter did, why? Because Peter witnessed the resurrection, and the resurrection is still true today, 2,000 years later. Then there's the third thing, third thing that Peter experienced, what we can experience, and that is that the resurrection looks like forgiveness. So in verses 15 through 17, Peter has an encounter with Jesus, which is a little awkward because Jesus asked Peter three questions, and Peter, like, says, you should know the answer to this, Jesus. Like, of course I love you. And it gets awkward because the third time Peter's like, man, what more do I have to say for him to get this? See, this is a pretty educated guess, and you can speculate to this. I don't think there's any coincidence that there's three betrayals and then there's three statements or three questions that Jesus asked Peter. Because I think he's going back into Peter's past and he's saying, hey, Peter, every single time you denied me, I'm coming back and I'm extending forgiveness. Because all that matters is not your betrayal. What matters is that you love me. And that's what is most important. And so I think he's going back. And so for Peter, what's happening in this moment, and we can see because from this moment on, Peter's life is totally different. He's not the same Peter anymore. Because we know Peter always had a tendency to stick his foot in his mouth. The next recorded kind of public kind of display we get from Peter after this is Acts chapter 2, where this guy who couldn't speak very clearly and couldn't say the right things steps up and preaches the most powerful message in all of, all of Scripture, and 3,000 people get saved and baptized in one day as Peter begins to talk about the prophet Joel. How does that happen? Because Peter has this encounter and realizes something about what Jesus is saying to you. He's getting to the core of who Peter is. Because in Peter's mind, you have to think for just a moment, Peter's got to be rehearsing what he just experienced in our Bibles a few chapters earlier. He's betrayed Jesus, and Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's saying, yeah, I, I love you, I love you. And, and each time it's like, okay, then I'm, I'm wiping away that betrayal. I'm wiping that away. Why? Because there's something had to happen in Peter that got to the core of who he is that changed him so that he didn't have this foot in the past. He still had his foot in the past. He still had to be thinking through that because that's human nature. You and I still replay our failures all the time. We do it with God. 
and usually it's the, po- it's the moment of advance when God's pushing you forward in your life. You go right back to your, your greatest failure and you just keep repeat- repeating that over and over again. Why? Because somewhere down the line, you did not allow the forgiveness of God through Jesus' death and resurrection to penetrate to the bottom of your soul. It's somewhere on the surface, but it hasn't penetrated. It hasn't gotten down to the core of who you are so that you feel fully accepted by God because what Jesus did on the cross for you. It's like you ever watered a, a potted plant that has holes at the bottom that allows water to seep out, and you start watering, and you know when it's saturated when what happens? Water comes out the bottom. Then you know that all the roots and everything in that pot is fully saturated. It's got water in it. And I think God's forgiveness is like that. We're like, yeah, yeah, I know that you forgive me. I understand that. And that's right up here, but it never gets down and never penetrates to the the core of who you are because you still don't believe that God actually loves you. No coincidence that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. Because if Peter really knows that if he's saying, yeah, I really love you, then he's allowing Jesus deep into his soul. It's not that Peter has to perform and do something for God. It's that the relationship that Peter thought was lost at the betrayal is now what? Reestablished. Because Jesus never mentions the betrayal ever again. Never. Not in this context and nothing else. Why? Because he's restoring Peter back to what he was supposed to be. Then there's a fourth, a fourth reality that we experience in the resurrection, and that is that it looks like purpose. So again, in verses 15 through 17, this encounter that Jesus has with Peter, there's three things that Jesus says in response to Peter's answer to his question about, does he love him? And so what does Jesus say? He says, either feed my sheep or care for my sheep or tend my sheep. This is huge. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, I know you failed. I know you betrayed me. I remember when our eyes locked. I know the shame that you feel. I know the brokenness that you, ha- that you have in your life, and I, I know that you feel like you are never going to be qualified to do anything in this life, so because you say you love me and that's all that matters, feed my sheep. Remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd? This whole shepherd sheep thing was relatively huge, huge to Jesus. For Jesus to say to Peter, the one who betrayed him and turned his back on him publicly, he looks him in the eye and says, Peter, here's your purpose. This is why you're alive, is to care for my sheep. Can you imagine what Peter is thinking at that moment? You're like, are you crazy, Jesus? Do do you remember who I am? Do you remember what I did to you? Remember how I stabbed you in the back and I turned away in bitterness and walked away from you? And Jesus says, Peter, I've forgiven you. Feed my sheep. That's his purpose. That means because of the resurrection, it's not the end, it's the beginning, which means for Peter, it doesn't end at chapter uh, 19, it it actually goes on, which means that Peter now is restored fully to the reason that Jesus has brought him in to be one of his disciples, to care for his sheep. Why is that important? Because most of us in this room have used the label and the words to describe ourselves, I am disqualified. I'm not qualified. We all do it. God pushes in on you, and you say, ah, no, not me. How about them? They're better looking. They got more money. They have more education. They're more talented. People like them. Not me. You know what you're talking about? Read, th- read through the Bible. How many times does God have an encounter with humanity, and we always do the same thing? As though God is, like, mistaken. Oops, got the wrong person. I'm sorry. Almost every person that God uses has that conversation. Got the wrong guy, wrong guy. And, and Jesus is saying, no, Peter, you're going you're gonna to be entrusted with the most important thing in this world, and that's the people that I have. 
you and I are, have disqualified ourselves and put ourselves on the sidelines of God's purpose in life because we think we have, we're not qualified. This whole thing called Christianity never had to do with our qualifications. Never. Your salvation has nothing to do with your qualifications. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done. Same thing with his mission and purpose in your life. It has nothing to do with if you're qualified or not, or if you're smart enough, or if you're good enough, because Jesus chooses to use who he chooses. We just went through the first part of DE2 this last Monday. Those are in the class. We looked at the 12 that Jesus chose to be on his mission, and those 12 guys, none of us would have picked them. None of them. None of them would have been on deck. They wouldn't have been our second pick. They wouldn't have been our third. They wouldn't even made the cut at all. But Jesus picked them. Why? Because it wasn't about their qualifications. And I've become convinced in my life that God believes in me more than I believe in myself. When it comes to his purpose and his mission in the world, which, by the way, if you said yes to Jesus, you've said yes to his mission, his purpose. You don't get salvation and then you get to camp out until he returns. Your salvation is connected to this thing called mission and purpose, which means God loves people and loves the world. That means we're all on mission to make sure people know that, that God loves them through Jesus and that there is hope for their future. That's all of our responsibility. But God continues to believe in you even when you don't believe in yourself, when you're just kind of discarding yourself and pushing yourself to the side and marginalizing yourself. God says, no, I choose you. It's like my high school basketball coach. In my, my junior year, league championship, I was shooting the ball really well up until this last game, and so the coach decided to run all the plays to me. There's numbers that are stuck in my head that I will never forget. Three for 15. That means three shots that I made and I took 15. That's really bad. On a good night, you should shoot 50%. But what got me in that game is the first half, I was it was horrible. I thought, okay, sooner or later, the coach is going to figure out that I can't shoot this game, so he's going to figure out who else on the team can shoot, and he's going to run plays to them. And the entire third and fourth quarter, he kept running plays to me. He never pulled me out of the game. He kept running until the very end, until we actually lost the game. And I'm thinking, that can't be good coaching. I can't be. There's got to be somebody else. But, but I remember after, that was like the best and the worst at the same time. Because after that game, I walked away and thought, man, my coach believes in me more than I do. He kept giving me the ball. He kept telling me to shoot the ball, even though every single time I felt like I missed. Anybody ever feel that way in life? Jesus comes back at you again, and you're like, really? Do you know how many times I've blown it? Do you know how many times I've missed? Do you, know, you know what I've done? As though God doesn't know who you are. And he says, once again, the ball's coming to you. Once again, it's your turn to take a shot. Once again, I'm coming to you. Why? Because it has nothing to do with your qualifications. It has to do with what I want to do in you and through you in your life. Peter got that. We can see by the way he went on from this point and lived his life. So then there's a fifth reality, and that is experience and resurrection. This is where it gets hard. It looks like identification. So what do I mean by that? So verses 18 and 19, there's something really important that happens. So Jesus says to Peter, he says, listen, when you were younger, you pretty much called the shots for your own life. But now as you grow older, in fact, he uses specific language, you're going to stretch out your hands, which was a sign of incarceration that's going to lead you to a death that you're going you're to endure for my sake. Jesus was predicting the way that, pe that Peter was going to die, and he, and, and he did. He died by crucifixion, the same death that Jesus died, Peter died. And from what we can tell historically, we don't have exact numbers, but we think from what history says that as John was writing this gospel and completing the gospel, Peter had already been crucified for Jesus. So John's recording this, knowing, he, kn he's, he already knows because he's writing this, he knows what's coming, and Peter is, is, is submitting himself to this. Why is this important? 
because Peter was getting a concept that allowed him to experience life like he's never experienced before, even though it ended in physical death. He fully identified with Jesus in his death and then his resurrection. Let me explain what I mean by that. Listen to some of the words that, that reflect this reality. So Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What was he saying to Peter? Come follow me. Guess what? You're going to lose your life. In the process, you're going to find it. Here's the reality. If you follow Jesus, you go through two deaths and two resurrections. You're like, wait a second, that's weird theology. When you say yes to Jesus, Jesus calls you to come and die. Because you can't live unless you die first. Death comes first, then comes life. That's the pattern that Jesus set. So there's, there's the first one is in this life, which, by the way, resurrection is this reality today. It's not just the reality in the future. So Jesus calls you and says, listen, come follow me. Identify yourself with me. Come and die. Die to yourself. Die to the way you used to live, the way you used to think, the way the patterns of your mind and the world. Die to that way and then now live a life that I've created you to live. That's the first death and resurrection. The second one comes after this life. We die physically and then we are what? resurrected with a whole new body to experience eternity with Jesus. But that's the future one. Don't worry about that one. That's good. That's taken care of. It's this one. They were living in resurrection life on this planet 2,000 years ago. We're supposed to live that way today. Peter understood that. Peter got that. In fact, he got the words that Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter was a dead man walking. He knew it. And so because he died, he realized the life that I am living now is not my life to live. I lost rights to my life. I gave him over to Jesus. I've died. In a sense, it's like if you had a, you've ever had like, very few people have this, but you had a near-death experience. You live life differently. Why? Because you think you're living on borrowed time. You're like, I should have been dead a long time ago. And if I should have been dead a long time ago, then why am I alive? If I'm alive, then my life is not about me anymore. It's about what God's trying to do. That's why I'm still here. Now, I'm not praying this or wishing this on anybody. A part of me wishes all of us could have that near-death experience to like realize it's not me anymore. What Paul was saying in Galatians and what Peter got is that it's not our life. You don't have rights to your life anymore. That's good news because we screw it up when we have rights to our life. Jesus takes our life and says, now let me show you what living is. Let me show you what you were created for. Not your agenda, but the agenda that I have set for you for your life. About a week and a half ago, Kim and I were heading down the 23 where it ends at the, the 101. So you can go north to Ventura, you can go south to L.A. And about 300 yards in front of us, there was a guy, in a, was a, he was a construction worker, and he was a, had an F-150 pickup and fully loaded with all his construction equipment in the, in the bed. And, and so we were watching, and as, as watching, we, we were the first car behind him, but he was a distance ahead. It looked like he was going to go to Ventura. So it, uh, he was in the L.A. lanes, and he started to swerve over kind of late to go to the lanes of Ventura. Like, wow, that's a late kind of correction. But I thought, okay, he's going to make it. But then he corrected back to, back to get back into the L.A. lanes. Well, at that point, he corrected way too late. And he was doing about 70 miles an hour. And when he came back into the L.A. lanes, he didn't clear into the lanes. He actually caught the guardrail at 70 miles an hour. And it was, I mean, his truck just disintegrated on impact. It was crazy. 
And so, we're, I mean, debris flying all over the place. And so literally, I pulled up right behind it. I'm like almost jump, just jumping out of the car. Kim's on the phone with 911. I'm running up to the truck, and I'm, I'm anticipating seeing somebody who's dead. I mean, I was convinced, and it was so horrific. So I get up there, and I can't really see anybody. And then as I come around the passenger side, I look in it, and this guy kind of lifts up his head. He's bleeding all over his face, and he's stunned, and the airbags had gone off. And so I run around to the driver's side, and I said, what can we do? I said, well, what's going on? And I said, what are you feeling? He goes, the, the, the seatbelt's like, it's like choking me. And so there's another guy coming. And he goes, what do you need? I said, I need a knife. I don't have a knife. And so this guy ran back to his truck and he gets a knife and he cuts off his seatbelt. And so this guy, he kind of comes to, he's kind of out of it. And then he, he gets out of his truck. And this is what's crazy. He gets out of his truck and he's, I'm like, let's go over to the guardrail. You're going to pass out again. I, I don't want you to fall. And, you know, and he's like, he's like looking at his truck to see if it's okay. <laughs> It's like in pieces all over the road, right? It's, you could tell he's, he's definitely, like, not all there. So we get him over to the guardrail, and we sit him down, and CHP rolls up, and then fire and rescue is coming. And so me and the guy who were the first ones on scene, we're standing about 20 feet back from the truck, and we're looking at this thing. And literally, both lanes that go onto the L.A. side, uh, down to the one-on-one, are blocked because there's debris everywhere. The drive shaft shot off, like, like, 20 or 30 feet. I mean, it's just everywhere. And we're looking at this, and about there's this huge kind of rectangular piece of metal like hanging out the bed of his truck like 10 or 12 feet we're thinking what was this guy hauling i mean that something ended up still in the bed of his truck when everything's all over the place and then we're looking closer and we both start walking closer to the truck and i start following this piece of steel and i follow it right through the cab and right through the engine it's the guardrail and it's still attached to the bridge and it's impaled his truck and it's still there and then I look into the cab of the truck, and I realize that that is sitting 18 inches away from where this man was sitting in his truck. If he would have hit that at 70 miles an hour, he wouldn't have been there. He would have been obliterated. So here's the crazy thing of what happened. That thing was 18 inches away from killing him, but it also was 18 inches away from saving his life, because this is what happened. If you know that interchange where those lanes split, just below that split is T.O. Boulevard. And what happened when he came back across, and this is what the weird thing to watch is, as his truck's disintegrating, it flew up in the air, and what the remainder of it slammed back down on the road, and it was the strangest thing. And the reason it slammed back down on the road is because it was attached to the bridge still by the guardrail. And if it wouldn't have been, he would have been airborne at 70 miles an hour onto T.O. Boulevard. And that would have been it for him and whoever else was down there. So the very thing that almost killed him is the very thing that did what? Saved his life. Sound familiar? The very thing that Jesus calls us to do, which is what? Die to ourselves actually does what? Saves our lives. That's when why when Jesus says, come follow me, deny yourself, what? Daily, pick up your cross, which means die to yourself every day. Wake up in the morning, and this is the good news. Say, it's not my life today. It's not my family. It's not my job. It's not my house. It's not my car. It's not my money. It belongs to Jesus. What does he want to do in my life today? When you get to the end of the day, it may not be a perfect day. It may be a difficult day, but I'll tell you what. You're going to look back on that day and say, I lived today. I was alive. Why? Because I lived the life that Jesus called me to live. Peter said yes to that. Even though a few years later it ends in crucifixion, I'll tell you, if you go to heaven someday and you see Peter, he's going to tell you it was the best decision he ever made of his life, to die to himself he actually experienced life and then finally finally the experience of the resurrection of our lives looks like redemption and redemption is when god comes along and he purchases you back from your sin and your brokenness and makes you brand new again 
it's this par- process in a sense we use the word recycle but it used to be redemption you remember when you were a kid and you could take like a coke bottle for five cents and you could return it what it had redemption value which means although you might want to throw that in the trash because you've used it if you turn it back in it has value again that's what jesus does with our lives that's what jesus did with peter how do we know that this is what's crazy so if you go back to the beginning when peter first encounters jesus on that seashore Peter's a great fisherman, but he doesn't catch fish like Jesus catches fish. He has this great catch, and then Jesus ends that encounter with Peter with two words. Do you remember what those words were? Follow me. So that's three years ago in Peter's history. Then think about Peter's journey. So Peter says yes to following Jesus. He witnesses the miracles. He's lived with Jesus day in and day out. He even, this is what's crazy, he is inspired by Satan to get in the way of Jesus' purpose on earth. That's a bad day. You remember that encounter? So, so Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to have to go to the cross and die, and then I'll rise from the dead. And then Peter steps up and says, never. You got it wrong. That's not what's going to happen. He goes, why? In Peter's mind, Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of Israel, politically overthrow the Romans, and then everyone's going to be happy. That's not why Jesus came. And Jesus says to Peter, he doesn't say get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter... You think the betrayal is bad? Your worst moment is when you allow the, the, the devil to inspire you to get in the way of God's work. That's a bad day. That happens, and then if that's not bad enough, then you have Peter denying Jesus three times. So after all those three years of history that Jesus has with Peter, how does Jesus end it with Peter in John chapter 21 with two simple words? Follow me. Do you catch what's going on? Peter has failed miserably. He's been a horrible disciple. Seriously, he hasn't been what he's supposed to be. And still, after all of that history, Jesus comes back again and says, follow me. You know that Jesus does that in our life all the time? No matter how bad you failed, no matter where you've gone, Jesus continues, comes back and says what? Follow me, follow me, follow me. But but, but I'm not qualified, follow me. I've blown it, I've I've failed, follow me. Follow over and over and over until the day that you leave this planet, Jesus will continue to say, Follow me in your salvation, but follow me in the purpose and mission of life. Jesus will continue to come back to you because we treat him. We are an unfaithful lover to a faithful person. That's what we are. Remember remember the movie Forrest Gump? I know the movie's getting older and older, and and I'm dating myself. But Forrest Gump's relationship with Jenny. No, by the way, Forrest Gump is not Jesus. Okay, but we're just using him as illustration here, okay? If you watch that movie... Jenny is his love interest, and she comes in and out of his life multiple times. And usually she comes back in crisis mode. Some guy has dumped her or abused her or she's strung out on drugs, so she comes back to Forrest, and then she, she gets her life kind of together, and then she walks away again over and over again. And then finally at the end of the movie, she gets sick, and, and they actually get married, and she dies, and he's there. He's, th- he's there at her deathbed. All the way through, he keeps receiving her back and receiving her back. Even though she walks away and she does horrific things, he's still there to take her back. Doesn't that sound familiar about the way Jesus works with us? Over and over and over and over again. And so Jesus is saying, listen, don't disqualify yourselves because I haven't disqualified you. I've actually qualified you by my death and resurrection to be in my family and to be a part of my purpose and mission. So what right do we have to say no to God? What right do we have to say, no, you got the wrong person There's somebody else. We don't have that right. Why? Because we have died 
with Jesus. We are identified with his death, and now we get to truly live. And that's why 2,000 years later, and I'm not saying we, we work up some emotion or we manufacture some artificial existence, but there has to be something different about someone who conf- confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in the resurrection than anybody else around you. Why? Because we know that the one issue that all humanity has is this thing called death, and we follow the one who's the only one who's conquered it. That should change us. So I'm going to ask you if you would just go ahead and, and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to conclude with, with communion together. But I want you, just as a point of focus, to, to close your eyes so you can, you can really focus in on what Jesus may be saying to you this morning. In a moment, uh, when we go back into the one last song of worship, that you will be free to go to the stations around the room that, that have the elements of communion in, in there's the bread and the cup. These are symbols that we, we take. We eat the bread and we drink the cup as once again a, a way of remembering and identifying with what Jesus has done for us. But as we do this, I want to highlight a couple things. First and foremost is remember this. The cross and the resurrection are eternally tied together. They are two distinct events that play off of each other that allow us to have forgiveness and newness of life. So when you come to the table today, be reminded that although Jesus died and we remember the brokenness that he experienced, we remember the forgiveness that he brings to us, the reason he can do that is because he's alive. Because death couldn't hold him because of his perfection. And he has the power to change our lives. But, but with that in mind, as we come to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us, you may fall into one of two categories today. And I, and I the first one is that you, you come today and, and your concept of who God is has been shaped by maybe early church experience, maybe what you thought about Christians in the church, but what you've always felt about Christianity or maybe what you felt towards God is that I'm never good enough. That to actually experience life, I've never been qualified. I, I, I just, I can't be good enough. And so even though I try, I look around and there's so many people that are so much better than I am and but I wish I could do that, but I can't. I know what's wrong with me, and because of that, I don't feel like I'm worthy enough to really know who God is. If that's the mentality that you bought in, what you've done is you've disqualified yourself before God ever said anything about disqualification. What you need to hear today is Jesus says to you, because you were unqualified to be in my family, I qualified you by my death and my resurrection. I took your sin, your failure, your brokenness, your patterns of going back and back again and around again to the same points of failure in your life. I took all of that on the cross and I paid for it so that its power over you is broken. And the way he broke that power is that death didn't hold him and he rose from the dead and destroyed the power of death in your life. Now you may not know that, but that's the truth of what's happened in you. And so today, Jesus is saying to you, you're not disqualified, you're not unqualified. I've qualified you to be part of my family, and I want to welcome you into that. And I'm saying to you today, follow me. Give your life to me. Die to the way you used to live. Embrace me. Let me allow my forgiveness to bring restoration in your life as you move through the future and away from the past. You turn from what used to be to what is and what could be through Jesus.
But then there's a whole other other category I think that some of us fall in today. It may be a year, it may be 10 years, it may be 50 years. You said yes to Jesus initially. And you've said yes because you realize that you need salvation. You need forgiveness. You need God's grace in your life. But since that moment, God keeps coming back to you and saying, there's more to the life that you're living. There's a life that you've yet to experience. And it comes in different ways. In fact, sometimes it makes you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it makes you feel like you're being judged. Sometimes it makes you feel a sense of shame inside because you're like, no, 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 I, I, I can't do that. And when God comes to you and says, I have a bigger purpose for your life, as he did to Peter and said to Peter, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to care for my sheep. Jesus comes to you and says, I have a mission and a purpose that's bigger than the life that you're living. The first thing that comes to your mind is you're like, no, 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 no. I'm not qualified. I can't possibly do what you're asking me to do. It's too overwhelming. It's too costly. I'm fearful. I don't, I don't know what I should do. I don't understand what, what you're, and we come up with all these excuses and Jesus says no follow me he gives us his spirit to dwell inside us to empower us to be his witnesses and so for some today God is saying to you follow me once again he's saying your life is not yours it belongs to me and I have life that is just beyond what you think your life is in fact for some of you You've settled back into a way of life that honestly, although you might have cleaned up your act morally, you maybe aren't doing the bad things you used to do, there's not much difference between your life now and your life before. You maybe sin a little less, but you got the same problems and the same struggles. You're doing the same job, living in the same house or apartment, doing the, you're living the same life, and you're thinking to yourself, Jesus comes again today and says to you, follow me. Die to yourself. Give up your life so that you can find life. Let me define for you what life looks like. I'm convinced there are many in our church that if you were willing to do this, you may not find yourself living in Simi Valley anymore. You may not find yourself living in the same rhythm of life anymore. Or you may actually find yourself living in the same house, doing the same job in the same neighborhood, but you're so transformed, you're a different person. Different person with the same life. Why? Because, once again, you finally have said yes to Jesus' call to follow him. So if that's you, then when you come to the table in these next few moments, you come in as a point of surrender to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to identify with Jesus. I'm going to die as I partake of these elements. I am dying to myself and I am saying to myself with great joy and anticipation, this is not my life to live anymore. It's Jesus' life to live through me, which is truly living. So Jesus, when we come to the cross again, we come to remember what you did for us. I pray, Lord, that today would be a day of transformation in our lives, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts to see that there is more to life. There is resurrection life that we are to be living that you do by transforming in us what the life, life is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to be like. So Lord, today would you come and do that for each one of us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you that you have allowed us to have life and access to life that is abundant, that is beyond, that is resurrection life. So let us experience that today, Jesus.